Kim Kardashian and her cringeworthy, bloody vampire facial. Without a doubt in my mind, I believe vaccin vaccinations triggered Evan's autism. Gwyneth Paltrow okay. came out and said that she had this vaginal steam, and I'm like, no. if Gwynny gets her vagina steam, <laughs> maybe we need to be right. <laughs> We are in an era of health and science misinformation, and celebrities are leading the charge. Scientists, experts, and doctors are losing the public's trust, and compelling testimonials from Instagram influencers are replacing medical advice. These false claims not only waste time and money, but can also be extremely dangerous, as we've seen with the anti-vaccine movement. This two-part series tackles the topic of science misinformation, which refers to the spread of pseudoscience, wellness bunk, and health claims that are not backed by research, typically coming from non-expert sources. Today we are speaking with Timothy Caulfield, a professor of health law and science policy at the University of Alberta, and an expert in science misinformation. Professor Caulfield is the author of two national best-selling books on this topic, including Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? when celebrity culture and science clash. To start unwrapping this topic, we first have to understand how we are exposed to this misinformation and who is the most vulnerable. You know, it's, it's an interesting question. As you can imagine, you could do like a, a PhD thesis on, on just on the first one. Um, but you know what, I, I think things have really, really changed. And increasingly, uh, the misinformation has spread on social media, you know, whether you're talking about misinformation that is uh, created on social media, or whether you're talking about a news story that is, you know, uh, filled with misinformation being spread on social media. So I think for sure, social media has transformed how misinformation is spread. But but in addition to that, I think another interesting phenomenon is happening, and this is the something I call science exploitation. So where you have uh, misinformation kind of being embedded in, in news stories, in regular news stories. So you'll have misinformation, let's say a sports athlete gets uh, PRP, platelet-rich plasma, or stem cell treatment, or, or a celebrity gets a, the vampire facial. Uh, they'll be talking about that in the entertainment pages, in the sports pages, without any kind of critical analysis. So you have this, this misinformation being spread about health, uh, in a, in a form that you don't traditionally think of as a source of health information, but it creates it creates that environment uh, of of misinformation. Misinformation is also spread in tr in traditional sources uh, on TV and in traditional sources of news, and there's a uh, you know research to back that up. So unfortunately, misinformation is is really coming from numerous sources, and that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to fight. Uh, and I think it's also fair to say that the celebrity culture and social media have really transformed it over uh, the last, you know, really last decade, I would say, to uh, to create this, you know, this monster that we're now trying to grapple with. Are there individuals that are particularly vulnerable to that? You know, again, really complex question, you know, because I think some, uh, the kind of misinformation that is perhaps most damning, uh, and this is perhaps what I'll highlight here, is the misinformation that speaks to you, right? So if it's a story, if it's a narrative that's relevant to you, it, it, it's likely to have a greater impact. And the example I always use, of course, is Jenny McCarthy, right? Jenny McCarthy spreading misinformation about vaccines. Uh, one of the reasons I think that that was such a powerful message is it was a story that would resonate 
with parents, right? That's a vulnerable population, people thinking about vaccinating. And if you're a parent thinking about vaccinating, you hear this story from Jenny McCarthy about her kids, it might have a greater impact. And there's really interesting research that says that narratives and anecdotes can have a tremendous impact. It, it, it will overwhelm our rational thinking. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the things that's going on here. Clearly, social media is involved in the spread of health misinformation. But we've been taught since a young age not to believe everything we see on TV or read on the internet, right? The North American house hippo is found throughout Canada and the eastern United States. If you grew up in Canada, you might remember that ad from Concerned Children's Advertisers. That's why it's good to think about what you're watching on TV and ask questions, kind of like you just did. While younger people tend to have more exposure to social media, they've also had more education about finding evidence-based sources and more experience sorting through fake claims on the internet. So is there a difference in how misinformation affects younger and older populations? You know, I, I think, you know, there's this interesting idea that, that, you know, exactly what you said, right, that there's some populations, particularly youth, that might be exposed to more. And we also know that just being exposed to this matters, like just being exposed to it. You know, it's the mere exposure effect. If you're exposed to an idea enough, it, it seems more plausible. It seems more believable. Uh, in part, that's our cognitive biases at play. We're easy, we can recall it more quickly. So if you're on social media a lot and you're exposed to noise a lot, you're more likely, I think, to be uh, susceptible to that misinformation. And there's research also to back that up. Um, so I think that the youth, are, you know, for that reason, may um, uh, have more exposure. But we also know that it, people of all ages are on social media all the time. It's a little bit of a myth, uh, myth, this idea of the digital naive, right? You know, everyone's on social media now. Not everyone, uh, but almost everyone. So this problem affects everyone, but that can't include you, right? Have you ever fallen victim to science misinformation? We asked about the most notable cases of misinformation and how they've impacted individuals. There's so much, so much science misinformation. It's hard, it's hard to pick. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna bounce around from from things that are kind of trivial to things that are really serious. And let's start with the anti-vax one, right? Because I, I really think that is is significant, and so much has been said about it. But one of the reasons it's important is number one, it's had an, a real impact, right? a real measurable impact. You know, it, people around the world are suffering. So I think that's that's one of the reasons we absolutely need to highlight that one. Uh, in addition to that, I think it's also mobilized people around the idea of misinformation. You know, I've been doing this for a really long time, and people are taking the issue of misinformation more seriously. I think because of because of of what's happening in the context of vaccines. I, I think you're also seeing it uh, with things like GMOs. You know, the misinformation being spread about about GMOs and the potential. Uh, adverse harm. Now, that one's more of a complex story, right? And that's one of the reasons it's a little bit difficult or difficult to grapple with that one. Uh, but there's also a lot of misinformation about GMOs that it, it, that they're they're bad for your health. You know, I, with GMOs, I always put these in three categories. One, is it bad for your health? You know, is it bad for the environment? And uh, what about corporate ownership? Well, the reason people avoid GMOs is because of the first one, and that's we have research to back that up. And there's absolutely no evidence to support the idea that GMOs are bad for your health, right? Uh, so it's a really good example, I think, of, of how something that can become almost a truism in certain communities that GMOs are bad for your health, despite the, the lack of evidence. 
you know, its impact on the environment and biodiversity, I think, is more complex, for sure. I, you know, I'm so skeptical about whether there's a definitive answer there, but absolutely something we need to consider, and also with the corporate ownership issue. But again, another really good example of, of the spread of misinformation. Um, uh, the other, another interesting one, I think, is the concept of natural. Like, if it's natural, it's, it's good for you. Um, I, I think that that is also uh, really problematic because it creates confusion around how it, it causes people, I think, to um, think that living a healthy lifestyle is harder than it really is. Perhaps causes community, and there's a little bit of research to back this up, uh, causes communities, communities and individuals to spend more money than they need to on, on eating a healthy diet. So the idea, you know, the naturalistic fallacy, I think, is another, is another really, uh, really big problem. And then, of course, you can dig into some of the fun ones that are still, I think, really problematic. Uh, and one of them is the idea of detoxification, right? This idea that we need to detox our bodies. That one has taken hold uh, over the last decade and has not let go, despite the fact there's no evidence to support it. And it is problematic because often the idea of detoxing is attached to a little bit of boost your immune system naturally, which is code for anti-vax, right? It's code for don't use pharmaceuticals, use do it naturally. Uh, and, and also I think it can lead to real harmful practices like colonics where you could perforate your bowel. It leads to harmful things like extreme diets. Uh, but that, that myth continues to live on. Another one that drives me nuts, and I think maybe your team has heard me talk about this one before, is the gluten-free diet. You know, the gluten-free diet. Now, the one I, I find this fascinating because, you know, it maybe doesn't impact that many people, uh, but um, well, I take that back. It does impact a lot. It impacts a lot of people. If you believe the research, uh, over a third of the Canadian population thinks they should go gluten-free. They are gluten-free. They're buying gluten-free products. Again, no evidence to back that up at all. You're celiac, right? 1% of the population. Of course you have to. And even if you're non-celiac, gluten-sensitive, controversial diagnosis, but data is starting to emerge, you're still looking at about another 1% or 2%. You're not looking at about a third of the population, right? So it's incredible how this, this idea is held on. And it does have an adverse impact. Again, people are spending more money. There's research, some research from Alberta, that shows that gluten-free diet is actually worse for you. It's not as healthy. It's actually uh, um, can have more additives, more sugar, and more unhealthy ingredients in it. Um, and uh, in addition to that, it, it causes, again, this confusion about how you're supposed to live a healthy lifestyle. It really is amazing how a diet that never had any evidence to support it has had this health halo uh, around it that has not been, not been diminished at all. Uh, and if you ask people, um, you know, is a gluten-free diet healthier? Most people say yes. There was an interesting study that came out of the University of Victoria that found that almost 50% of elite athletes uh, are gluten-free because they believe it's healthier. If you ask someone why you're going gluten-free, they do it because they want to try something new, they think it's healthier, and they think they're going to lose weight. Uh, and there's no evidence to support uh, that idea that it's healthier or that you're going to lose weight. Um, we also shouldn't forget the high-tech stuff. Right, the high, you know, here I'm picking on sort of alternative, uh, bizarre trends. But you got to remember, there's stuff like uh, the stem cells, 
therapies that are being marketed. And MDs are often involved in this, right? The marketing of unproven stem cell therapies. And people are spending you know, thousands and thousands of dollars on a therapy that really has no evidence to support it at all. Uh, and this, again, is a science exploitation phenomenon. There's a lot of excitement around stem cells. So that has really taken off. You see the same thing happening with the microbiome. You see the same thing happening with genetic testing. So there really is health mis misinformation everywhere. If you've been tricked by any of these false claims, don't feel bad. It's fair to be confused by the huge amount of conflicting health advice we are bombarded with. But there are clearly factors at play that have made our society more susceptible to the spread of fake science. Basically, it's not all your fault. So how does misinformation change in response to societal issues? And can political factors make it easier for misinformation to spread? Okay, so you know what, I, I think that it's really interesting because I think you'll have social trends that are not constructive, that are harmful from a health perspective. Uh, and right now we're seeing body image issues, right? We're seeing extreme weight loss um, marketing going on. Um, you're seeing um, the cell phones and, and social media more broadly are really just these these little engines of social comparison. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. So you have that social trend going on, married to the spread of, of misinformation that facilitates that. It's, and so you get this feedback loop, right? So you get um, misinformation about diets, misinformation about supplements, misinformation about how you're supposed to exercise, all feeding off this broader social trend about uh, how we're supposed to look, how, we're, how much we're supposed to weigh, uh, how we're supposed to live our lives. Um, and I think that's really problematic. Then you have social trends like um, the wellness industry, a $4.2 trillion industry that's almost completely, that's almost completely um, science-free. Uh, and it's this idea, it almost creates this, this imperative that we're all supposed to live a certain way. We're all supposed to constantly strive to be better humans, to be more well. And what's really interesting about that is a lot of that puts the onus on the individual. You are obligated to live your best life, as Oprah might say, <laughs> uh, to live your best life. And you're supposed to strive to do all these things uh, to be healthy. And it really takes the burden away from society, from built environments, from our environment more broadly, uh, to education, to social structures, and puts it on the individual. It's your job. And what's really interesting, it ties into this ideological moment that we live in, right? This ideological moment of individualism, of, of uh, you know, you have Donald Trump uh, in the United States, you have Poland, you have Hungary, that this, these populist movements, right, that are also concentrated more on that kind of ethos. So it's a really interesting question. And for sure, you see misinformation responding to that sort of ideological dynamic. What's really interesting was there's, there was one study, and it's hard to study this well, it was a correlational study, but still interesting. One study that found a correlation between the rise of populist ideologies and the rise of an anti-vax sentiment, right? So certainly there's a little bit of information to back up that sentiment. And uh, so I think that stands as a good example of, of, of what you're talking about there. Now that we know a bit more about how these false claims spread, let's talk about the impact. When you see influencers posting about their weight loss tea or essential oils, it doesn't exactly scream dangerous threat to public health. 
But does this really reflect a more widespread societal problem? It's becoming increasingly difficult to differentiate credibility and fake news, and this has many clear and serious implications for society. So why aren't people more concerned about health misinformation? And what are the dangers of letting these false health claims spread? I, you know, I, I think it's worth, worth reflecting on why misinformation is, is dangerous and why it's problematic. Um, you know, I think the anti-vax movement is just one example. We have to, I really think misinformation, um, it does distract us, it distracts the, um, the public, and I think it also distracts policymakers, and I think it distracts um, clinicians too, like uh, healthcare professionals. Um, it distracts us from thinking about and acting on the things that, that really do uh, better health, uh, getting better exercise, uh, eating healthy, other preventative strategies, you know, wearing your seatbelt, washing your hands. These are the things that really have, have an impact. So for, number one, it's distracting. Number two, there are often physical harms associated with this, whether it's actual physical harm, like you perforate your bowel because you get a colonic, or physical harm because you are not getting uh, effective treatment. You know, it, it, it stops you from getting uh, the treatment that might, be, might actually be beneficial. Uh, there's also financial loss, and that's the financial loss associated with the individual. Uh, some of these treatments cost thousands of dollars, but also financial cost for the system as, as a whole. Naturopaths sell all these unproven therapies. Um, often the healthcare system bears the burden, right, uh, of those costs when people go to check up or, or follow up on these unproven therapies. And, and of course there is the, the erosion of critical thinking, which I actually think long term is one of the biggest problems, right? That you have this erosion of critical thinking that is having an adverse impact, that may have an adverse impact for generations to come. Um, I, the good news, the little bit of good news, <laughs> I think is, you know, we are seeing people take this more seriously. You know, uh, earlier this year in January of 2019, the World Health Organization said that the spread of misinformation is one of the greatest threats to public health. Uh, and I think that's true. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and when I first started doing it, people kind of thought, yeah, that's interesting, but it seems like a trivial issue. People don't say that anymore. You know, with the rise of Donald Trump, with the rise of fake news, with the rise of social media, people take this very, very seriously now. Having said that, I, I think that we need to do more, right? This is a, a battle that we're not gonna fix with just one tool. Uh, it's not a battle that is going to be, one, you know, one skirmish it is going to be an ongoing fight and it's an ongoing fight we all need to be involved in. As Timothy Caulfield has explained, health misinformation is a serious problem that is only recently being recognized. It's important that we, as a society, don't lose our trust in science. We have to trust the scientific method of testing a claim and creating evidence-based therapies using these findings. While it might seem easy to blame the consumers that buy into false claims, the onus also falls on health experts. It's just as important that health experts communicate their research findings in an open and accessible way. This gives consumers the tools they need to think critically about their health. We can't all be expected to be health experts, nor do we have the time to personally conduct studies to validate all the claims we see. So what can we do? To hear more about what we can do to combat misinformation, check out part two of our interview with Timothy Caulfield. I'm your host, Julia Sundstrom. This episode is written by me and produced by Mary Noyan. 